Pray with me. Lord, still our hearts in this moment, still our minds, that we would turn to you in this wilderness season, that we would turn to you and feast on your word, that we would gain all the sustenance we need from what you have provided. Lord, grant to us that we might worship even despite my failing words. Bring us to Yourself. Amen. The year is 1999. We are out in the woods of central Texas somewhat recklessly gathered around a big campfire during a burn ban. You Texans know what I'm talking about. We had hiked what seemed like an hour, probably five minutes, to get to this sacred place. One of the eldest boys among us was even required to give the password that we might gain entry. Yet the solemnity and reverence of this secret entrance is soon balanced by wildness and silliness as we find ourselves dancing around the flames of the fire. From somewhere on the other side of the blazes, the lead counselor strikes a chord. There's a fire on the mountain tonight, and there's no place to run, no place to hide. Well, tell me, would you be all right if you had died tonight? There's a fire on the mountain tonight. Well, everyone joins in for a couple of high-energy verses. The first on Moses, the second on Peter. But then our counselors motion to us to settle down. And our leader goes on more softly. Jesus died on the cross. For our sins He paid the cost. He's inviting you to choose. It's your chance to win or lose. It's your decision. Your gain or loss. We're motioned to sit in silence with the question, would you be all right, sinking in as we sit and watch the fire? As I read over and prayed through our epistle reading for this Sunday, this memory of my first week at Bible camp as a boy struck me. Paul's language about the word of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and our desperate need for salvation brought me back to that withered wooden bench and the question, would you be all right? Now, don't be too concerned. I wasn't having doubts about my faith or about your faith. But what kept bringing me back to this image was the feeling that I felt as a nine-year-old contemplating what on earth it meant 
to be saved. To put it another way, I remember thinking, why shouldn't I be all right? You know, flames and all. Why do I need to be saved in the first place? These are questions that almost any non-believer would need serious answers to if we shared the gospel with them. Fortunately, they are questions that Paul takes head on in this portion of his letter to the Ephesians. The first three verses, read very well by Jonathan, lay out clearly what we need to be saved from. Paul says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And he calls us sons of disobedience and children of wrath because we had fallen, all of us, prey to our own passions and even to evil spiritual forces at work in the world. He is very clear in conveying that everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, had fallen into these sinful ways, leaving all of humanity guilty and disgraced. We see in these verses that we need salvation from real evil at work in our culture and in our world. And we need pardon for our active disobedience of the just God. It is a dark picture. Yet embedded in this account of our failings, in the very expressions he chooses to use to show that we are in this darkness, Paul has already set up a subtle backdrop of God's mercy and kindness. The more I read these verses over the last few weeks, I kept asking myself, why use terms like children of wrath? or sons of disobedience. I mean, I love a good metaphor as much as the next guy, but it felt like these phrases might have a deeper connection. And they do. The answer is that Paul is drawing on imagery from the Old Testament. <laughs> you thought I would preach on the New Testament. Silly. More specifically, he was drawing on one particular particularly tense moment early in God's history with Israel where they had proven themselves children of wrath and he had proved to them that his grace could overwhelm their failings. So journey with me back real quick to the beginning of the life of the Hebrews. It's Lent after all. We can spend a little bit of time in the wilderness before we get back to Paul. Come with me back into Exodus, where the mighty Yahweh makes himself known to his people as a God of salvation. The event that I'm speaking of takes place in Exodus 34. By then, it is long since God has told his name to Moses, declaring, I am that I am revealing that he is the God who answers to no one and can be known by his works of salvation. He has already displayed his power in the plagues of Egypt, delivering Israel from slavery. In fact, 
By the time we get to Exodus 34, Yahweh has already anointed them as a kingdom of priests, given them the Ten Commandments, provided water and manna in the desert. Time and time again, God has shown His power and favor to Israel as a good God. Yet even after all this, we find ourselves in a bit of a pickle by chapter 34. See, Moses had gone up to be in the presence of God for 40 days. And seeing that it was taking a little while, the people, frightened by his absence, had convinced Moses' brother Aaron that it was time to move on and make a new idol. In case you're wondering, this is why Stephen is not allowed a real vacation. There's no telling what you lot might convince Justin and Catherine to do. Anyhow, both Moses and Yahweh are furious and hurt by the unfaithfulness of this people. However, God knew that it was exactly these kinds of moments when our ugliness and guilt and shame are in full view that we need to be reminded that His great goodness can cover over our brokenness. So He plans to show even more of His glory to Moses in order to help bring the wayward people back. He arranges for Moses to go high up on the mountain, shield himself in a little cleft of the rock so that he might experience just a tiny portion of the glory of God's presence. You can feel the drama of this important moment as you wait with Moses in the cleft of the rock just to catch a glimpse of the backside of God's glory as he passes by. Imagine being there with him knowing that you are part of the stiff-necked people, longing to be righteous, but so often falling short in the worst ways. This is what seems like our last chance. Yet just as you're getting caught up in thoughts of all your failures, the mountain starts to rumble with all the force of a stick of dynamite, the very voice of God bursts forth. The energy of His presence overwhelms your senses, and yet you hear this proclamation with perfect clarity as the glory of your Lord passes before you, even now. I am Yahweh. I am God. I am mercy, am grace. I am patience, abundant love. I am unrelenting faith. I am he who tends the tender love for thousands. I am the lifter of their guilt, offense, and sin. But by no means shall it go unpunished, visiting a father's guilt unto his sons and sons' sons. Kin. Sisters and brothers, can you feel it? This is the character of the ever-loving, unceasingly just God. He is both lifter of guilt and punisher of sin. If we were truly up there with Moses, we would be terrified in the tension of that moment. In that moment, knowing that we are numbered among those sons and daughters 
of disobedience, not knowing if his abundant love would overtake our guilt. Yet merciful Yahweh speaks again to give us peace and hope. He says, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. That, that covenant promise is God's assurance that he would find a way to overwhelm the punishments we deserve as children of wrath. And that is exactly what Paul saw God fulfilling in the work of Jesus. So fast forward with me all the way back to Paul into the second chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. Now we see what Paul was getting at with these images of children of wrath and sons of disobedience in the first few verses. But we are also ready to see how God's character conquers the failures of our character. Look at the awesome testimony of verses 4 and 5. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see how Paul is almost quoting what God said about himself, his own character on the mountain? God's mercy, love, and grace are on full display in his saving work in Jesus. The wrath and punishment that we and all our mothers and fathers before us have deserved canceled out on the cross and reversed by the resurrected life of the Son of God. Instead of being treated as children of disobedience, verses 6 and 7 show that Jesus has us seated as children of His obedience. Paul has labored to show us that we and the Ephesians, of course, were in desperate need. But God has met that need in His Son with the same abundant love that He revealed to Moses. It was always going to take Yahweh's unrelenting faithfulness to overturn our weak faith. That is why Paul can say the next three verses is the climax of his good news. This is the very heart of what I needed to understand as a little boy wondering about salvation at a campfire. Paul concludes his summary of salvation proclaiming, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Dear church, do not 
misunderstand what Paul has just said here. He did not say that you have been saved by grace through your faith. That would be impossible. You and I are like the unfaithful Israelites. Our God, Yahweh, the Savior Jesus, we are saved by His faith. He is the gracious, merciful, patient, ever-loving, and unrelentingly faithful one. We are saved through His faith. When I was sitting on that bench at camp, I thought that all I needed to do in life was believe the stories that adults told me about Jesus. I thought that I was good as long as I believed the right things about God. But what Paul is saying here is very different from that. Paul is saying that our beliefs and our attempts to do good works are all doomed to fail. Salvation is not about your beliefs. Instead, salvation is possible because Jesus triumphed where we failed. It is not merely a salvation from punishment or hell or whatever. It is salvation into the perfect life with God that we were meant to have before humanity was kicked out of Eden. Salvation is the gift of the Spirit, teaching us to love God and one another more than ourselves. It is God granting us freedom from the wretchedness that we all see in ourselves as He recreates us into who we were meant to be. If I have gone on telling you what you already know, I'm not sorry. The good news is no less good when it is no longer new. My primary hope for this sermon is to remind you of the awesomeness of your God, of the splendor of what He has done for you. I know that I can often forget how incredible it is that I have the Holy Spirit, that I have the very power of God working in me to direct my heart towards loving Him, seeing creation as He sees it, receiving His gifts and giving. I get lazy and distracted with friends and food and good movies. And those aren't bad things. But they're better when we love them in light of the best thing. When we see Jesus, and we love Him most, and the Spirit turns us to see the beauty of everything around us through His work. I forget that there are so many people who do not have the slightest idea about that joy that we 
we all have access to. Holy Church, you, body of Christ to me, help me. If you have been brought into this marvelous, powerful salvation, let us hold one another accountable to share this life. We ought to be the fire on the mountain tonight. There should be no place to run, no place to hide. And though Satan puts up his fight, we will shine the light. Let's be the fire on the mountain tonight. Amen.